You're listening to HSBC Talks Business. Learn how businesses like yours are leveraging a wide range of banking solutions to maximise their success and how HSBC is helping them. Listeners should note that this episode has been recorded remotely, therefore the sound quality may vary. Thank you for listening. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Thank you very much for being with us here today. I'm Babita Sharma here in London, and today I'm joined from the United Arab Emirates by Dan Howlett, HSBC's Regional Head of Commercial Banking in the Middle East, North Africa, and Turkey. And I'm also pleased to have with us Malik Shuka, who is the CEO of Averda, one of the Middle East region's leading waste management companies. Dan and Malik, it's great to have you with us here today. Now, our topic for today's session, is sustainability still a priority in a pandemic? Now, as you are, I'm sure, very aware, COVID-19 has presented huge challenges for all of us this year. It's really changed fundamentally the way that we work, how we live, and how that has impacted the way that business is conducted globally. HSBC's latest Navigator report, Building Back Better, focuses on how companies are making significant changes to how they operate after many found that their contingency plans just couldn't cope with COVID-19. Now, what it does is draw on a survey of over 2,600 companies in 14 countries and territories, including 100 businesses in the United Arab Emirates. What it shows is that firms lacked proper planning And that's in key areas such as technology, finance and sustainability prior to the crisis, with nearly half saying that they could have done more to prepare for the challenges posed by this pandemic. However, the research also found that some 91% of firms surveyed aim to make their businesses more sustainable, with 27% intent to make their supply chains more environmentally friendly over the course of the next two-year period. Now, with two leading voices on the topic in the Middle East joining us, let's get straight into the discussion. Dan Malik, welcome. Thanks very much for being with me this morning. Thank you. Great to be here. Dan, I want to start with you and, and ask you firstly how you understand that the COVID crisis has really changed the way that businesses view sustainability. Well, thanks, Babita. And I think uh, the reality is that COVID-19 has not only redefined, but it's also accelerated the way in which we now do business. If I look at our region and around the world, governments, financial institutions and corporates are all looking at new ways to develop and become much more self-sufficient across a number of sectors. What the crisis has come to show us is that businesses see sustainability as more important than ever before. Our Navigator research shows that nearly two-thirds of companies in the UAE and around the world feel that sustainability has an importance either unchanged or has increased in importance. If I look at some of the leading commentators globally, Mark Carney, the former governor of Bank of England, has said that firms that align their business models to the transition will be rewarded handsomely. But more importantly, those that fail to adapt will cease to exist. I also want to take this opportunity to talk a little bit about the work that we've done at HBC and how we're now taking sustainability even more seriously because of how COVID pandemic has acted as a wake-up call to our business as our CEO, Noel Quinn, stated a couple of weeks ago. We then announced an ambitious plan to prioritise financing and investment 
in all areas of transition to support economies moving to net zero global um, from an economic perspective. We want to achieve that net zero carbon emission from an overall portfolio by 2050 or sooner. So this is an opportunity to help build a thriving, resilient future for both society and for businesses. And we also want to do that within our own business. So by 2030, that's our objective to be net zero in our operations and our supply chain. And we're going to work with customers to reduce emissions globally. And ultimately, it's our ambition to support customers up to a trillion dollars of finance by 2030 to help with that transition, which I think demonstrates our own commitment to transitioning through the pandemic. Yeah, it really does, Dan, and I think that ambition, a bold one, really sets out, you know, how you are viewing this pandemic with a view to how we can really have that ethos of sustainability at the forefront of our minds. And Malik, I just want to bring you in as the CEO of Averda. You've expanded your waste management company's reach from the UAE to eight countries across the region. You now operate in over 40 cities and serve over 12 million people collecting, now this is an extraordinary figure, 10,000 tons of waste every single day. Well, I mean, firstly, let's talk about the Navigator survey and the results of that. Does it really reflect what you are seeing on the ground and, and how you operate? Thank you, Rabita, and thank you, Dan, for inviting me into the session. I think uh, the Navigator results are really in line with what we're seeing uh, from our customers. There is a renewed uh, vigor for sustainability, and I think when we see uh, what what when we haven't treated nature with respect, what could happen? And, and I think uh, the pandemic, whilst quite significant, will will pale in in comparison to a, a full blown environmental crisis, which would not be solved by a vaccine or a cure. You would have to really undo a lot of work. And I think the fact that humanity woke up as a warning sign with COVID is, is an important uh, harbinger for, for sustainability. On, on a much more sort of localized level, what we've seen is the first, you know, the first wave of uh, the result was, how can we be more sustainable now that we have the opportunity to reset? You know, I was working with uh, a London Business School a professor that helps us with strategy and she was saying not a lot of time do you have a you know an opportunity to have a, a reset in your business and i think a lot of our clients we're seeing are looking at this opportunity to retool and to find a new way of dealing with sustainability much like hsbc has announced their net zero i think a couple of weeks ago i think we're finding a lot of our clients are coming to us and saying how can we look at you know post-covid world in a more sustainable, in a more uh, eco-friendly, in a more environmentally encompassing way. And I think from where we're sitting, you know, we're seeing a lot of concern around that. Yeah, and I think that reset, you're talking about, we've all felt that in, in any impact of what we're doing every day with our working lives. And also, I think, you know, you made the valid point about that safety aspect, because really, that is uppermost in many people's minds. Dan, on that point uh, that Malik just raised there about the priority for businesses, you know, when we think about the Middle East economy, it heavily relies on hydrocarbons. And do all regions, including the Middle East, truly want to be sustainable and is it practical so is there a want there well i guess this gets to the heart of the debate so 
So the Middle East is a fascinating uh, country which has shown a tremendous amount of change when you consider how it's evolved in the in recent decades. And we have a population across the Middle East there, about 580 million. That's forecast to grow by around about 60% in the next 25 years. And there's a very young demographic as well. So we have a, an awful lot of people pushing for a completely different economy. Uh, and governments in the Middle East recognize that and they're seeking to diversify economies across the region and transitioning from this solely hydrocarbon-led economy to alternative sources. We've seen a lot of infrastructure projects supported by government as well as uh, independent private entities seeking to draw on renewable energy and social infrastructure projects. If I break it down into some of the countries and what we've seen in the region, in the UAE, there's an energy plan out to 2050. And that's seeking to drive clean energy to be around about 50% of the total mix of energy in the UAE by 2050, from about 25% today. And we're also looking to see the UAE reduce its carbon footprint by 70% by 2050. Quite a remarkable turnaround. Then you've got Saudi Arabia looking to invest up to $50 billion in renewable energy by 2023 to reduce its dependence on oil. And if I look at Cairo, an amazing mega city, um, the Egyptian government just issued a green bond, five times oversubscribed, $750 million, showing how much people want to support Egypt as it diversifies away from uh, hydrocarbon. And then in Turkey, we've seen the government issue um, a number of sustainability-linked activities and a number of corporates seeking to transition away there as well. So we're seeing an awful lot of activity across the wider region. Yeah, it's fascinating to hear about that. And those are eye-watering figures and, again, bold targets, aren't they, Dan? But, Malik, I'm just wondering if we really break it down to, for example, the mindset and, and how businesses approach their view to being sustainable. I'm wondering whether internally at Averda, whether you believe, you know, with your clients and suppliers, if there is that demand for that responsibility when it comes to waste management and being environmentally responsible with it. I think if you if you zoom out a little, right, and I think you look at you know, sustainability in, in, in the current context, right, there is a, a desire to have a lot more uh, environmentally friendly practices by a younger demographic. And, and when I say younger, it's probably closer uh, or less than 40 years old and, and beyond. What we're seeing, though, in, in parallel is a lot of the industries that have been uh, impacted by this desire, either have a, a large investment in, in existing technology or in behavior. So what, what tends to happen is what drives the consumer uh, desire, it has to be backfilled over time with, with infrastructure, with behavioral change, and then ultimately with, with the outcome to the environmental. And I think there is now a desire in the Middle East that we see you know, we always say that the desert is a magnificent competitor to sustainability. It's very cheap to, to, to leave something behind in the desert. Uh, generally speaking, you know, people don't find it offensive to have a landfill in the desert. But I think if we look at, you know, five and ten years ago where that was sort of acceptable to people, today that's completely unacceptable. And what we're seeing is our clients coming to us and saying, how can we do better? How can we create energy from the waste? How can we recover some of these plastics. I mean, the fundamental truth, and this is, you know, in, in most of the reports out, is that we only recycle 11% of the volumes that we produce globally, right? I mean, that's, that's, where, that's where we are in terms of climbing that mountain. 
And I think the, the, the unfortunate reality is it takes a lot more of infrastructure and planning and thinking to put down that sea chain. But armed with a much younger uh, population, as Dan mentioned, right, I have a lot of hope uh, for the Middle East and because of this uh, ability and because the governments are now willing to fund. And I think with HSBC making that pledge around 750 trillion, uh, uh, of, of you know diverted funds from traditional uh, to to green. I think we will begin to see uh, the, the the change. And what will happen with time is, as you do this, there's a flywheel effect where you do one thing and then it just accelerates into the other. So I am I am disproportionately you know optimistic about getting there. Yeah, I haven't heard that phrase before, disproportionately optimistic. We're going to go with that because I think what what is interesting about what you've just said there, Malik, is the demographic and also the regulatory framework in which you work. So with that in mind, Dan, let, let's talk about specifics here in terms of what the businesses and the measures that they are taking here. You know, can you just talk us through that process? Well, that's a great question. So I think the piece what we're seeing across the region is... Um, a focus on areas like air quality and sanitation pollution. About 46% of clients in the UAE are focused on that. In healthcare and telemedicine and digitalization of healthcare, about 44% of clients were focused on that area. And then in the broader sector economy, we're seeing more and more businesses seeking to shift their focus or retarget their growth aspirations to sustainability. So there's a great example here in the UAE of a very long-term traditional player called Lamprail. We do a lot of work in oil and gas and energy markets, but are now increasingly focused on the renewable space. And they're doing a huge amount of their new work in offshore wind, not just here in the region, but globally. If you look at the UAE as a government, for example, it's focused to have 27% of this energy is clean by 2021, as I said earlier, 50% by 2050. If you look at Egypt, there's another example, the target is 20% by 2022, uh, and in Turkey, 30% renewables by 2030. There are today about 1.9 billion euro projects in sustainability in Cairo alone. So it's not just corporates looking to shift, there's an inherent pivot point in the way in which the region's approaches sustainability. And of course, it doesn't just mean renewables, it can re mean reviewing how we source products today, now we can ensure that our supply chains going forward are more sustainable. So I am, like Malik, disproportionately optimistic here. Yeah, and I can I understand that sentiment now more so. I think your commitment, both of you, is very clear to sustainability. But I think what I want to find out is what it is about the current crisis that has really pushed sustainability to the forefront of businesses' minds. I mean, Malik, to you, what what do you understand? The reasoning is behind that and also what the legacy then will be moving forward when we look at sustainability i think the sustainability has been driven by uh, two you know sort of thoughts one is you know we for the last 15 years we've been you know advised and and coached on using the same thing over and over and over again and then all of a sudden we're surrounded by single-use gloves single-use uh, masks single-use everything because everybody was so worried about getting infected. And I think that has probably woken up another part of the brain saying, if I'm using this much for us, you know, maybe I should find a way of, of looking at it. Number two, I think in, in a time of crisis, you, you relook at everything. 
And I think as businesses look, they're beginning to see that there is an opportunity. Maybe it'll cost a, a little bit more at the beginning. And, and the businesses that Dan has mentioned, you know, they've all put in a lot of investment towards becoming more green. Now they'll pay for it through recycling the sludge or, or, or getting their, you know, uh, a good price for their fresh fruit and veg. But the reality is they took a chance and they, you know, at the time where no one was supporting them. And, and let's not forget, in the emerging world, governments so far have not been an active actor in, in providing uh, investment and legislation and regulation to ensure a greener and a more sustainable uh, living. So what has happened is these businesses have started looking at, you know, bulbs. Can we use the bulb longer? Can we look at, you know, renewable energy? Can we look at what is coming out from the back of the plant or the back of the office and find a way of doing less with it or, or, or even producing less of it? And I think with this reset, you know, they are now able to do that. And with a reduced output from their plant, you could take the time and, and put in these changes. And we're seeing it when things have been disrupted. You really look at the important stuff. And I think people have woken up how important it is to where we live. And the second thing, and the, or the third thing that I sort of, and this is on a personal level, I think the people have had the opportunity to learn and to sit there and think during working from home. They've had really an opportunity to sit there and really have an extra hour or two of just, you know, people not barging into their office, people just really putting down some thought. And I think they looked at life and said, it's probably good, uh, you know, time to really rethink about how we do business. Yeah, and I, and I think we've all been there, haven't we? I know I know in what I do in the dissemination of uh, information, it, it really is about stopping, pausing, reflecting, but also being quick to react in, in the way that we need to. Dan, I know I asked you to respond to that question about legacy, but I'm going to tie that in with a question. Is HSBC going to leave global disinvestment in the fossil fuel sector and do it fast? So again, picking up on Malik's point about reacting quickly, is that something that you can expand on? Yeah, sure. And I guess I, I completely agree with Malek's comments. Um, I guess Winston Churchill said about, I guess, forming the UN after World War II, you can never let a good crisis go to waste. And if you'll excuse the pun there, I think that's the reality. Companies and governments are becoming much more forward-thinking, agile about the way in which they tackle the sustainability challenge that we face. And, and I think moving with a pace that we've never, ever seen before and backed by investment. I guess um, our objective is as a bank, we want to be in a position to, to help lead in this area. We're going to be prioritizing deliberately financing and investment that supports those companies that are transitioning to a net zero global economy. We want to achieve that net zero target from our portfolio by 2050 or sooner. Um, but I guess against that, you know, we want to make sure we're working with companies to support them not just in financing terms, but also from an advice and guidance perspective and drawing on the expertise of people like Malek and their companies so that they can share their experiences so people can see how we can do this. So we have no plans to remove capital from existing corporate clients simply because they are heavy emitters today. It's our focus to work with them to ensure they're able to transition to lower carbon emissions over time. And we think it's better to work with our customers, provide these solutions, rather than simply say, we're not going to work with you. And alongside that, you know, this applies in every sector. Every sector has a responsibility to seek to reduce emissions to the best of their ability. And we appreciate, though, that every customer will also have its own unique conditions. And I guess it's our pledge 
you know, to ensure that we're able to develop tailored individual bespoke solutions, taking account of the unique challenges that all of our companies face across all sectors and geographies. It is a partnership. Yeah, it really is. And, and that working together, as you said, Dan and Malik said it a, a little earlier, is vital to ensuring a smooth process for everybody and a fulfilling one as well. Um, uh, Malik, how will technology play an essential role in transforming the waste management industry while promoting sustainability and modernization? Uh, I would need about six hours to answer this, but I will try to do it in 60 seconds. That's, that's good. You've got a little bit more than 60. I'll give, you, I'll give you a minute and a half. How about that? Um, it's all about the technology, Babita. I think, you know, when we look at, you know, the investment that we've made in, in terms of digitizing the business, because there are two things that you have to look at. At the end of the cycle, right, when you, when you take a piece of, you know, waste and you recycle it, people want to know where it came from, you know, whether it's a manufacturer or even an end user. So we've put in a lot of capability into the system to make sure that we're able to trace back to where this piece of uh, waste was collected from, where did it go through the whole system? And I think for us, when we look at, you know, uh, the amount of digitization that we put in, in terms of just monitoring the fleet, making sure that everybody's healthy, making sure that everything is being done properly, that's the first cycle. Then the second cycle, or the second phase, is once you get this waste into our physical sites, what are you going to do with them? Now, you know, fundamentally, there are three or four basic technologies when you're dealing with waste that has to be some composting of some sort aerobic or aerobic and and you get some you know energy out of it but there's a lot of newer technologies that require less energy that require less uh, space and, and it's the opportunity to to work with that whether on recycling plastics and other materials there's a lot of new technology that comes in a lot of people are investing in money a lot of money on, on making plastics back into oil uh, or, you know, making sure that you get fibers. I think Adidas, uh, you know, most of the sneakers they produce today are having a, a large component of recyclable filament in there. So when you start looking at that, and then finally, when you get to waste to energy, you know, and the emissions that come out of that, the technology is still quite nascent. I mean, it's solid and it's proven, but, you know, there is always room for newer technology in the system. And unfortunately, then that's the big unfortunate is these are large capital projects. And what tends to happen is once you've invested hundreds of millions into a plant, someone showing up you know, a couple of years later and saying, I have a better technology, is sort of like a dagger to the heart because you know you're gonna have to use that plant for another five or 10 or 15 years, knowing there is something better outside. And you know, that's the, the, the sort of the CapEx dilemma that a lot of us are facing on a daily basis. Yeah, uh, it is a double-edged sword, isn't it? Uh, last question, uh, Malik, if you would please briefly. What is your view of financing structure when the margin is determined based on sustainability-linked goals for the company? And by that, you know, do you think that that will become the norm in the short to medium term when we think about those sustainability-oriented goals for, for example, Averda? I, I think you saw Dan smiling when, when, when the question was asked, and I think... Uh, it's quite an interesting one. I would love it if everything was within our own control, right? And I think that's the challenge. If if you say to a business, I'm going to you know charge you a margin based on you know your ability to take something at the uh, at the front of your plant and and produce something at the other end, I think we would all be very happy to take on that uh, opportunity. The problem is most of the the waste management or sustainable even anything else 
has a lot of behavioral issues that have to do with the public and with government. And I think that's where it gets a little bit more uh, difficult to make a commitment. But I, I would love to have the opportunity to, to drive it with that kind of alignment to say, if you do well, you know, uh, you'll pay less. And I think that's a, that's a great you know, initiative. And if we can do it on a, on a small scale to start, and I think we, then, you know, it would be exciting to do. Dan, just to you, because I saw you nodding away there to what Malik was saying. Just a thought from you on that in terms of where we're at with the short to medium term goals. So, look, I think it's a realistic objective that where companies are committed to more sustainable projects going forward, that we're able to provide them with differential pricing and tied to those green objectives. So that's something that I would like to think that we as a bank and globally we should consider very much so. That doesn't mean it's a commitment, though, Malik, okay? <laughs> well, yeah, and, and Malik, I'm going to leave you with that question mark, actually, because uh, we've come to an end, but to Dan Hallett and to Malik Shuka, thank you both so much for your time. It's been really fascinating to hear your thoughts on what is a, a fundamental issue that we're all facing, not only in our businesses, but also as citizens of the world as well. So thank you so much. This conversation is going to continue very much because HSBC will, of course, have its annual navigator survey coming out in December. It will include the results of a comprehensive survey of over 10,000 business decision makers. And that's operating in 39 markets around the world. And, and what we will do will provide a further insight into how businesses are adapting to the current environment that we find ourselves in and planning to invest in the future. Now, please do look out for it. So you can find more details at business.hsbc.com slash navigator. That's business.hsbc.com navigator. So just to sum up, as Malik and Dan were saying, you know, it's very important that, yes, sustainability has always been there before this pandemic struck, but it's very much now about thinking on our feet and, and really reacting to what environment that we find ourselves with, but staying true to ourselves to ensure that sustainability is something that can be accessed clearly and smoothly around the world. That's it from me and the team here at HSBC, but thanks so much for joining us. I'm Babita Sharma. And we'll see you again soon. Goodbye. Thank you for joining us for HSBC Talks Business. To learn more about anything you heard today, please visit business.hsbc.com.